Second Peter chapter two. We'll be starting this chapter. Peter has reminded us of of what God has done for us. He has uh, said he wants them to have these things uh, in our life and growing that list of of traits, of qualities, different ways that people have translated what is basically the word things uh, going on in our lives. He wants us to always remember what we've been taught, and he wants us to remember to the point that even when he's gone, we won't forget it. Even when he dies, which he says will be soon, he's, that we won't forget those things because what Peter has taught them and what they know is not from Peter. It's not even really from the other apostles, and it's not even from any of the prophets. All of this is ultimately the word, the interpretation of both of the word and the event of God. Uh, and proclaiming Christ's majesty, his honor, his glory. Peter says, we witness these things. We witness them. We saw them. We were there with them on the holy mountain. And, and not only that, but the, we have even more fully confirmed the prophetic word of God that witnesses the same. And we are to submit, church, we are to submit to God and his interpretation of who Christ is, not to anyone else's even our own. And so he wants them to remember these things because Peter is not just writing for positive reasons to the church. He's not just writing to encourage them about chapter one. He's not just writing about, hey, look, God's done all these great things for us. So this is how we sort of as like gleeful, joyous individuals prance around in the kingdom of God until Christ returns. He says, I want you to know what God's word is because he wants to protect them from a a very real threat. The threat, not of false prophets, the threat of false teachers. And that's what we're going to get into in chapter two, false teachers. That's what's going to happen. That's the threat that's going to arise in the church. Not people coming up with new things that God has said although those do still continue today. But people twisting what God has said. That's the words that, that, that Peter himself is, is going to use, this idea of twisting the word of, of God. Uh, so let's stand in the honor of God's word, and let's read, let's read I, think, I think we did down through verse, the start of verse 10. Starting in chapter 2, we'll go verse 1 down through the beginning of verse 10. So he said all this, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of God. Scripture came first, not from, not from someone's own interpretation, right? But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's what God did in getting us the word. But now verse 1, just so you can see, again, we don't have a sharp chapter break here. This is continuing what he said. But false prophets... Also arose. He had men who spoke from God. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, 
and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the essential conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. He did all those things. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Let's pray. Father, we have heard from your word all that you've done. We have looked these past several months at, at all the things that we must know and how important it is for us to know them. And now we see why it was so important to this church that Peter was writing to or to these churches. And Father, we pray that we would get wisdom from it as well, that you would teach us from your word, that you might protect us from false teachers, that we might treasure your gospel and that we might be rescued even from a wicked generation. As you promise you can do. Because that's what you've always done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so that's, that's what we're going to be looking at in chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2 is, is really the, uh, uh, the problem of false teachers. The problem of false teachers. He says that right at, right at the start of chapter 2. Now, now, this is actually a really interesting place in Scripture uh, that we're going to start looking at the idea of false teachers. This is the only time in the Bible that the Bible warns us about false teachers. The only time this word false teachers is used is right here in Second Peter. So it's a pretty interesting thing going on here. Uh, you, 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 now you find the idea of people who are teaching wrong things, right? But the word false teachers, uh, pseudo didaskalos, is, is found only right here. Now you'll get ideas like false apostles, false brothers, false, uh, uh, false prophets. But he's going to make a point. These are not, these are not false prophets. These are, these are false teachers, uh, because as we're going to see, they're not going to be coming up with new words. These aren't people who are coming up with new words. These are people who are twisting the word of God, the word he just talked about. This is why he mentioned, hey, this isn't up for our own interpretation here. For you to say, this is what God, no, God gives you the word and he gives you the interpretation of it. You have to submit to that. So these people are twisting that interpretation of God's word as, as, we, as we shift from what is in our Bibles, chapter 1 into chapter 2, or in the letter, uh, one sentence to another sentence. These people are not replacing God's word. They're not creating new word. They're giving their interpretation, their idea, instead of the interpretation supplied by God in the word. So what does Peter tell us in this, in this ultimate section on false teachers? What does Peter tell us about false teachers? 
And that's what we're going to look at. The problem of false teachers, we're going to look at sort of take from him some guidelines. This is the section where he really lays out false teachers, where uh, God uses the idea of false teachers. We're going to use this to, to sort of guide us, not just through the letter, but just in general. The first thing that we see from Peter uh, to start it in verse one is that false teachers will arise. They will arise. Look at what he says. But false prophets. So God gave the interpretation. Men spoke from God as they carried along by the spirit. But what? But false prophets also arose among the people. So you had God giving his word and you had uh, prophets rightly proclaiming that word and its interpretation. He said, but false prophets also arose among the people. If you know anything about the, the history of, of Israel, you know that Israel struggled with false prophets. Sometimes when they didn't want false prophets, and sometimes, oftentimes, very much because they did want false prophets. And so he says, just as these false prophets happened in, in Israel's life, these people who claimed to speak from God, but who did not. Just as that happened in Israel's history, in the same way, the church, he says, just as false prophets arose among the people, just as that, there will be false teachers among you. So in the same way that the nation of Israel had to struggle with false prophets, he's warning these churches, hey, there will be false teachers that are going to rise among you. People who will claim to be teachers of God's word, but will actually be leading you astray from God's word. Just like the prophets did. The prophets who said, this is what God has said, but we're actually leading them away from what God has said. He said, there will be teachers who will say, let me show you what the Bible says, but we'll actually be leading you away from what the Bible says. These false teachers are going to be that we will deal with or that they will deal with will be just like the false prophets. And I think you're going to see that even though this is right now, I mean, Peter's just saying these people are going to deal with false teachers. There is throughout scripture a clear recognition to guard God's word against those who would teach it, what we would say erroneously. Right. So so false teachers aren't just going to arise to the churches that Peter is talking to here. False teachers will be a a problem for every church to be aware of. Every church in every age must guard God's word from the threat of false teachers. He says these these false teachers are going to mirror the false prophets just as the false prophets. And it's funny when you look uh, at how he describes these false teachers, they are very similar to the description of false prophets in the Old Testament. I mean, they, they, they're really just deciding, instead of saying, I've got new words from God, they're just using the words already supplied, but by twisting the interpretation, they're just a new take on false prophets. So if you, you, you can see these similarities just in, the, in these verses that we'll look at. Just a couple of similarities. I could, I could have come up with more uh, from the text. We could have sort of seen more similarities, but... They, they, just like the false prophets, these false teachers will claim God as the source, but are actually denying him. They'll bring blasphemy on God instead of praise. They will consume rather than feed the people. They will claim peace, 
but in the end actually bring destruction on both themselves and their hearers. So those are just some similarities. I mean, if you were to, if you were to use those four things to describe someone, you've just described all the false prophets in the Old Testament. And that's how Peter is going to describe these false teachers. That's what's going to happen when these false teachers come up. Now, these false teachers are not just a possibility. He says these false teachers will arise. He's not just giving uh, Peter's church, these, these churches, Peter's not just giving these churches a, a worst case scenario. He says this is going to happen. In fact, if you're reading Second Peter, it's going to become pretty clear it's already has happened. They're already there. Uh, if you look at like First uh, Peter two seventeen, chapter three verse five, the way Peter talks about them, it seems that they are currently active. So look at two seventeen and eighteen. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. This, he's speaking present tense here. Peter doesn't say this is what they will do. He says this is what these false teachers are doing. 3 5 he says for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God so here he is in chapter 3 he's going to start telling us look the, the day of the Lord is coming these people are currently overlooking this fact he doesn't say hey I know that there are going to be false teachers who will overlook this fact he says, these people are currently doing that. Jude uh, talks of a similar situation. So I want to read a passage in Jude, verses 4 through 8, so that you can see a, a great parallel. If you've got your Bible and you write in the margins, you need to write Jude 4 through 8 next to this section in first, or Second Peter. Very similar. And you'll see, I wanted to read it early because we've just heard the, the section read as a whole. So you can see a lot of parallels already. But listen to verses 4 through 8. And you'll see that Jude is talking about these things have already taken place. These false teachers are, are already there. Although Jude will not use the word false teachers like we've already said. It's very, very, it's easy to see the same thing going on. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position authority, but left their proper dwelling, he's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. So you see a lot of the same things going on in Jude that we just read in Second Peter. 
You see sensuality, denying the master. You see uh, they were designated for condemnation. You see the threat of destruction. You see rejecting authority. You see their judgment. You see they have a lack of fear of God. All of these things. And Jude is saying, look, this has, for, for Jude, these have happened. This wasn't a possibility. Like with Peter, this is a reality that the church is supposed to be prepared for. And that God so thought was essential for churches, both then and now, that he enshrined these words to these churches in a book, in scripture, for us to always hear this warning. The danger of false teachers is a universal one. People will twist God's word. They will falsely teach it. They will not come at you with something new. They will take what you have in your Bibles and twist it. So what will these or what are these false teachers doing? I hope this will be a sort of a helpful synopsis of of what false teaching can do. Again, this is not all that false teaching can do. This may be the the only section in scripture where it says, you know, false teachers Uh, But there are other places where where wrong teaching is described, where uh, this thing is certainly taking place. Uh, But in a time in, in Scripture where false teachers are described, we can learn and see many of their actions mirrored in today's teachings. And lest we think, lest we be one of Zachary's favorite words, lest we be myopic. We can see these same things, not just mirrored out there, but mirrored sometimes in our own hearts. Uh, and that's one thing we've got to be careful about when we read Second Peter chapter 2 is just write down a list of all the things to look for in people out there. Uh, how to evaluate a teacher that we hear uh, instead of also a warning to ourselves. And that's what... Peter didn't just write this about the false teachers. He's writing these things. He's calling this church, these churches, this is the type of stuff you're not supposed to want. This is the only reason these people are successful is because you're wanting to hear the things that they're saying. So he's saying, look, church, don't be the the type of person who wants this type of teaching and of course certainly don't be the type of person who's giving this type of teaching so what can we learn about false teaching what do these false teachers do the first thing that we can see is false teaching brings division based on man's word not god's false teaching doesn't bring division based on man's word not god's word they, they, they bring in de- deceptive teaching that, that ultimately divides. You see, this is at the, the very start. It says, who, secretly, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So, so these teachers are bringing in, the SV says, destructive heresies. Well, what is that? Well, what are heresies? Well, technically... The word heresy is not a translation. The ESV was like, we're just not going to translate this because the word there is heresies, <laughs> heresies, uh, which is where we get the word heresy. So the ESV is like, we're not going to tell you what it is. We're just going to keep the Greek word. Uh, now, the word, the, the word her- you ever heard someone called a heretic? 
This is, this is that word. This comes from that word. Now, now I, don't, I don't use that word very often because it's, it's not really a, a biblical word. There's no, there's no biblical definition of what a heretic is. So, what, so people go, you know, what counts as heresy? When does, when, does, when does someone become a heretic? And people can just, since it's not a biblical word with a definition from Scripture, like this is what a heretic is, is what they... Then people can just come up with their own definitions of what a heretic is, and that always makes me nervous when someone, since they can't, since you can't disprove their definition of a heretic by going to scripture because there's no definition given in scripture for it, uh, they normally just just end up coming with a definition that fits whoever they want it to fit, and they can do that because there's if there's not a biblical definition, you can make it fit anybody. Uh, so I don't like to use that word because I can't then define it. Now I'll use words that. You know, we can use more biblical words for the same idea. Uh, so what is a heretic? What is heresy here? When it says destructive heresies, what is heresy? What, what is this biblical word here that is being used? Now, this word heresy is eventually going to come to mean a bad thing. Eventually. Uh, it is eventually going to come to mean false teaching that denies the very basics of Christianity. Similar to what Paul would say, the things of first importance or anything like, like that. But when the, when scripture is being written here in the first century, in the early first centuries of the church uh, and in the Bible, the word heresy didn't have that precise meaning yet. Now, the Catholics are going to give it a very precise meaning. Right. Uh, which is one of the other reasons I kind of go, eh, I just don't like using Catholic words, uh, but uh, it's going to become very precise eventually. But in the New Testament, it's not a precise word. It doesn't have that meaning. So when you read destructive heresies, sometimes we've got the word heretical and heresies. and We've got this idea of what that means. But but by this time in, in, in the writing of Scripture, the word wasn't that precise. The word heresy at its basic level just means division. In fact, in the Bible, sometimes the word heresy is a good thing. And sometimes the word heresy is used in a bad way. It it, it comes from the word hereo, which means to destroy. Uh, So, for example, when Herod was going to kill the children in Matthew chapter 2, he was going to hireo, hereo, he was going to heretic the children. He was going to destroy the children. But it, it also came to be a use that meant to divide or separate. So when Christianity is called the sect of Christianity or the way, uh, the word that they used is the, is the word her, her, heretic or hireo. It was this way that divided them from the other Jews. So when he says it is destructive heresies, I think what Peter is doing is being redundant. Because the word hereo means to destroy. So when he says destructive heresies uh, from Apollyon, uh, when he says these words are destroying, destroying things. These are destructive, destructive things. Because the word heresy is not always a bad word in Scripture. Uh, just a couple of examples. Um, Jesus is called uh, God's chosen one. Matthew chapter 12, verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. You can see the idea that that word chosen is the word uh, sort of heretic. The one I have separated out. Paul used the word in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. 19. 
in a positive way, for there must be factions among you. There must be heresies among you, but no one would, there's a reason they don't translate it that way, because talk about confusing everybody. Uh, there must be heresies among you. Uh, but the same word, uh, meaning what? There must be something that separates you, something that separates the church. In this, in this, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, it's going to be those who desire God's word versus those who don't. He said it's good that that division, that that heresy be clear in the church. So their heresy is a good thing for the church to have. Now, some uh, divisions are good and some are bad. So the word heresy is also used in a negative way in terms of dividing the church. Galatians chapter 5, verse 20, it's mentioned as one of the works of the flesh. He says, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. So that word heresies, heresies. Uh, Paul also used the word to talk about people who like to stir up division in the church. He says there are going to be people who like to cause heresies in the church, who like to cause division. So in Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, he says, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, literally that's as for a man who is a heretic. But what are the translators of the ESV recognizing? There's a reason your, your translation doesn't say, but as for heretics, have nothing to do with them. Uh, it's recognizing this word hiereo uh, or, or uh, heresy comes back ultimately to mean someone who causes division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self condemned. So that phrase stirs up division. Uh, you can see that idea. So, so, when we're looking here and we see that they're bringing in, because we want to understand what are they doing? They're bringing in secretly these destructive heresies. What's going on? Well, although heresy can have different meanings. If you noticed, some were good, some were bad in that definition of heresy, right? But what was one thing that was the same in all of them? They were things that divided. In all of them, it was about a division, a separation. Christ was separated from the world as God's chosen. There must be factions, separations among you. Beware the work of the flesh that would cause divisions, separation. As Titus says, as for the person who stirs up division. Again, that same idea. One thing is clear in all of them. It's, it's about division. So uh, the, the RSV translated destructive opinions which might be kind of getting at what, uh, what is going on here. This is a translation that, that, uh, that Calvin liked. I think that that might be a little bit more helpful than destructive heresies because it gets at what is starting to go on. This is about division, opinion, their ideas. If we're stealing from chapter, uh, from chapter 1, they're bringing in their interpretation, not God's. But I don't like opinions for this reason. We're going to see in this text what these false teachers are doing is not accidental. It's willful. They're not just coming in and saying, you know what? I think maybe it means this. These guys are not just making a mistake. As, as we've seen just last time, you can't bring your own interpretation in. You've got to submit to God. We're going to see again uh, in the next coming, well, not the next coming, we're going to see it later today if we get there. 
that these teachers know that what they're teaching is not God's word. That's why, that's why their division is destructive. Because a division doesn't necessarily have to be destructive. Wait, how can a division be destructive, Peter? Paul told us we're supposed to have divisions. How can, Paul, how can, these, how can the same word be good in 1 Corinthians 11 and bad in 2 Peter 2? Peter says these are destructive divisions because of where they're coming from. These people are bringing in not truth. They're bringing in personal heresies, personal opinions, personal divisions, interpretations that come from them and not from God, as he's just stressed about. Look, there are truths that divide. The word of God will divide. If you preach God's word, there will be those who want to listen and those who do not want to listen. That type of heresy is a good thing. That type of division is something the church needs. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 11, this is what we need. Those divisions show who is genuine and who is not. If I preach the word and you don't like it, you instead want me to teach my opinion or more likely your opinion. That says something Peter's going to say about who your master is. That type of division would be bad for you, to, for you to do that. But it would be good if I'm preaching the word and it becomes obvious, hey, I don't like that you either preach yours something else or I'm out of here. That sort of division is good. But that's not what these false teachers are doing. They are teaching, Peter says, destructive opinions destructive heresies destructive divisions they are teaching their word as if it were on par with god's word that what the people of god need to learn and do is what they say now there are two primary ways that people do this both are dangerous both are mentioned in scripture one is to take your opinion and go further than scripture goes. So scripture says this, but you take that which scripture says, and you sort of expostulate from it. Or you build on it. You go beyond what scripture has said, and now you create a new rule, a new guideline that people have to follow. A new thing that they need to see is in God's word, an opinion that you then hold others to. And that you teach as if it's a fact. Now, where did it start out? The Bible taught this, which would be fine to hold everybody to. But you went beyond that and said, you know what? If this is true, well, this is true because God said it, then maybe this is true. And sometimes we forget that maybe. And we go, this is true, so this is true. Now, I can agree to this because it's in God's word. This is in your head. And I don't have to agree to it. In fact, if I did agree to that, I'd be in trouble and you'd be in trouble. Scripture warns about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So there you can see 
Division that's bad, right? Why? Because people went beyond what is written. And if you remember 1 Corinthians, that's what was going on. I'm of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am from, I am of Christ. And there were all these divisions. And Paul said, the reason for your divisions is because you haven't learned from us to not go beyond what is written. So one of the temptations to be heretical, one of the temptations of these false teachers is to take your opinion and go beyond what Scripture says. And to treat your opinion as if it is text, to go beyond God's Word. In our desire to be biblical and to be holy, we cannot hold others to something that goes beyond what the Bible says. Because it is the Bible that tells us not to do that. You can't tell people to be biblical and then you go beyond what the Bible says. That is for you to not be biblical. Because the Bible is the one that tells you not to do that. If we hold people to a standard that is not explicitly stated in Scripture, we're holding others to our standard, not the Bible. We're teaching our opinion is more important than Scripture. God didn't say this, but you know what? Maybe he should have that idea. So that's one danger. That's like a, that's more of a me sort of danger, I think, sometimes. Especially as a pastor. This is a danger as a pastor. To want the Bible to say certain things. And you get to a passage and you wish it said that. But it doesn't quite say that. But you know, you know if I just twist it just this much, it kind of says it. And then to teach it as if it does say, listen, this is a, this is a, this is a danger to pastors. Even biblical pastors. I've heard, I've heard good sermons that are expository. And then partway through, I go, ah, I think you're kind of. And you're kind of stretching the text there. So, so even biblical passage, we've got to be careful of this. Let the text say what it says. That is sufficient. The Bible's not lacking. It doesn't need you to beef it up. It doesn't need your steroid injection to make it more powerful. But the other goes to the other side. And this is to have your opinion not go far enough. So if one threat is to take what you think to be true, And to go beyond what scripture says. The other is to see what scripture says and go and pull up short. Scripture says this, but you kind of stop short of that or you temper it a little bit. Well, yeah, it says that, but it doesn't really mean that. You say things, yeah, like, well, maybe that was a different cultural situation. You know, culture's different now. So I know it says these things, but culture has changed. Or, or times have changed or, or whatever. So you look for excuses to not say what Scripture says. You end up sounding like the serpent in the garden in, in Genesis 3. What did the servant say? Now, the servant was more crafty than any other beast of the field. So if you compare this to 2 Peter, the, the, the serpent is bringing in his destructive, secretly bringing in his destructive heresy here. And what does he say? He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so you twist what God has said because you really want to do or to say something. And so you pull up short of God. You use all these excuses to not do what God... I mean, this is, this, is the, this is how Christians make cases for things like homosexuality or women preachers. Did God really say... Yes, he really said it. He says it right there. But does he really mean that? Well, he said it. 
The Bible clearly teaches this, but you teach an opinion that pulls up short of that. This is a temptation in our cultural world to pull up short of what the Bible says. Now, what you're really doing is instead of saying, well, culture was different then, you say, well, culture is different now. And that don't matter. It does not matter one lick if people are going to like it, whether or not your church preaches that homosexuality is a sin that will lead to, yes, hell is also still real, right? Can't pull up short on that either. Men and women are still different. They are equal in terms of image bearing, but different in roles. And yes, that means that men are able to preach and women are not. Doesn't matter if you just call it a, a Bible study that sells really well. And so you'll just get up and talk, for, but you're not preaching. You're just getting up and talking. Doesn't matter. Bible says it's not what's supposed to happen. Now, how do you get to that point? You get to that point when your opinion pulls up short of God's word and you start teaching your opinion as fact. You start teaching. I know the Bible says this, but look, let me teach you that you can actually get away with less than what the Bible says. What are you getting? Are you doing? You're bringing a division that is a destructive division. Here's what God's word says. You are dividing the people from the word of God by pulling them up short. It is wrong to make, to require people to go beyond God's word and believe something that is not scriptural. And it is also wrong to pull people short of God's word and encourage them to do that. Both are wrong. The answer, do what God's word says. It's real easy. Just do what the Bible says. Let God be the one that you submit to. Don't force others or yourself to submit to your own teaching. So that's what these people are bringing in. They're bringing in their divisions. These divisions are going to destroy. Well, what are they? Okay, so they're bringing in these divisions. Be careful. They're going to bring in these divisions. What is it? Right? What are the divisions? Peter doesn't actually tell us. And, And I think that's because... He might be dealing with a specific division and the Lord is wanting to prepare us for anybody that brings in any division. If he got specific here, we would maybe just start looking for that threat in the church in in terms of false teaching. He's laying it wide open. But one thing is clear what they do. They will bring in these destructive divisions. What are these heresies? They are bringing in false teaching that rejects the lordship of Christ. That's what we see. Secretly bringing in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Teaching our own thoughts as if they are God's word divides us from the truth, divides us from one another, and ultimately it divides us from our master. The master who bought them, it says. When you go and you start saying what's important is what I think is important. I know God's word says this, but I want to believe this. What you're saying is, I know my master has said this and he's called me to this type of obedience, but I don't want to obey. I want to live like this. Look, it's easy to it's easy to call Christ your savior, but you also need to realize that Christ calls himself your master. He has saved you. I mean, Ephesians 2. He saved you by grace for what? Four good works that you should walk in them. Right? The word here for master is the word despotes, where we get the word despot. God comes here and says, look, I'm your despot here. I'm your Lord. I'm your master. 
That's why, I, that's why I laugh when people say that God, God is a gentleman. He'd never make us do anything. Uh, I say, well, that's, that God is a gentleman is not actually in scripture, but scripture does say that God is a despot. Uh, but no one ever is like, well, God's a despot. Uh, but that's, that's what the Bible says. It's a word to describe a person who bought a slave and therefore had control over that slave. It's common redemption language, right? That we were enslaved to sin and God bought our freedom. But even in passages like Romans 6, he bought us uh, as, from slavery to sin to be what? Slaves to righteousness. Right? So God buys us, purchases our freedom, and then in his grace enslaves us to himself. Peter says that their master bought them, that that Jesus as their master master bought these slaves, he purchased them through his atonement on the cross, that they're claiming that atonement, but they're denying the master part. We're not just set free in Christ, we're purchased. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body, as Paul says. You were bought, you were purchased, you were paid for. You have a master and Lord. This is how we know these false teachers are not outsiders. This is not, these are not people who like have wandered in in the back door and, you know, are just standing at the back handing out weird sort of flyers. You know, trying to get you to pay attention to their watchtower or anything like that. These are people coming from within the church. So Peter, Peter wouldn't speak this way about pagan philosophers that the people were being tricked by. These are people who are claiming the benefits of redemption, who are talking about things like grace and salvation and, and all those great things while denying the relationship of redemption. They're claiming the benefits of redemption, but denying the relationship of redemption. These false teachers, though claiming to be a part of Christ's bride, a part of his redeemed, are by their teachings dividing themselves from their master who bought them. So what were they teaching? Well, we're not really sure. Uh, It would seem that they are not outright denying Jesus or the division, the the false teaching would hardly said to be secretly brought in, right? They're not just coming in and saying, yeah, let's, let's switch. It's not Jesus. Let's worship somebody else. We don't know specifically, but we've seen in, in just in second Peter things that can, uh, options for what it could be going on. Either they're rejecting uh, the interpretation of what God has said, or maybe they're rejecting the majesty of Christ. The, The point, the, specifics of what they're teaching aren't important what is clear is they are denying their master by not treating him as their master peter is clear this false teaching is willful they are willfully teaching wrong things their master is telling them one thing and they are saying no i want to teach something else I want to believe something else. It's not that they have, simply have an opinion about something. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to have an opinion. You know, like we'd be afraid. Of, well, I don't want to have an opinion about anything. Someone goes, well, what, is this, what do you think this verse is talking about? And you're like, I'm not going to be a false teacher. I'm not going to tell you what I think it might be saying. Or it looks like maybe this. These teachers aren't genuinely trying to help the people and are just 
wrong. I mean, that's not what's going on. They're not just coming in and these teachers are coming in and they're immature and they don't understand God's word and they're just teaching incorrectly. They are twisting the word of God. They are, they are making it say what they want it to say. It is very willful. Their opinion is, that's why their opinion is destructive. It's not that all opinions or all divisions are destructive. But what is destructive is when you teach what you know the Bible doesn't say, but you teach it as if the Bible did say it. That's destructive. Whatever the specifics, their teaching is showing that they want to be the master of their life. They are casting off the Lord's authority over them, including his authority over what they're teaching. It's going to become clear later on. Second Peter 2.10 is going to compare these teachers to those who despise authority, who are bold and willful, who are unafraid. That's what's going on here. These people, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. These people are boldly rejecting what God has said. They are seeing it in scripture and saying, I don't care that it doesn't say what I'm about to say. I'm going to say it anyway. That's the boldness of, as he says, they don't tremble as they blaspheme the glory. Look, people should tremble when they blaspheme angels. How much more should you tremble if you play with the word of God? To go beyond it or pull up short of it, you should tremble because God knows what you're doing. As Jude's going to say in Jude verse 8, they are rejecting authority. And, and this, is, this is important because being wrong is not what makes these people false teachers, at least in a, in a biblical sense of what makes a false teacher. Someone sees a passage different from you. That, that doesn't mean they or you are a false teacher. And we've got to figure out which one of us is a false teacher. Okay, I think it means this. Why? You know, I think it kind of means this. Well, one of us is destined for destruction, friend. Uh, it doesn't mean like every text is, is like that. I think this passage is about this. Well, I think it's about this. This isn't saying you can't give your opinion on what a passage might be saying or you can't try and work out what God's word is teaching us here. These people are willfully not adhering to the Bible. Willfully. They're exchanging what God has said for what they want to be said. They are despising the authority of God. They're claiming Romans 6 but living Romans 1. They're claiming to be set free by their master, yet exchanging their master's truth for the lie. As Peter's going to say, they are twisting the text that is a willful change of what you know to be true. You can't, you, in other words, you can't accidentally be a false teacher. No one's going to accidentally end up being a false teacher in the, in the biblical sense. Now, you can be wrong, and you might need to be rebuked for being wrong or, or just reproved and corrected. The question for these false teachers and for us, and I guess this is where we're going to have to stop because we're ending at the end of time, is whether we're teaching the word of God. If you're teaching the word of God in, in a church, uh, or this, again, this isn't just about pastors. If you're teaching the word of God in Sunday school, or you're teaching the word of God to your children, teaching it, the question you have to ask is, who is the master behind what you're teaching? Who is the one that determines what you say? Do you trust your master enough to say what he says? Only what he says, but also not less than what he says. 
Do you go to Scripture knowing what you already want it to say? What you'll make it say no matter what? This is the danger of like topical preaching, right? What do I want my sermon to be about? I want my sermon to be about this. So what should I do? Well, let's find a passage that says what I want it to say. And then you find a passage that might say what you want it to say. Nah, it's close enough, right? That sort of idea. Look, as someone who was trained at first to preach topically, that is a very real danger. In every youth group, in every pulpit, what is the subject I want to talk about? And let me find, let me do a concordant search for a verse that might have a word in it that I, that, that's from my topic. And you get to that verse, you go, well, I don't see the connection. And you go, well, we're only going to read it for about 10 seconds anyway. And then I can get to my six points about whatever. This is a danger. Or are you humbling yourself under whatever God has said? I know my, I remember my own personal battle with this. This is one of the most shocking moments of my life where God, like sometimes God kicks you in the gut and you, when he kicks you in the gut, you're thankful that he didn't just slay you dead right there. It was, I was just learning about reformed theology. I was learning about God's sovereignty and salvation. Uh, and, uh, I mean, part of it was that I was just immature. I was just stupid. But I remember I, I was reading these things in scripture. Uh, and I, I went, nah, that's not how it works. Uh, and I would see these texts in scripture and I would see it play. You know, I read Romans nine and I go, well, that's pretty clear. Uh, and then I'd go, well, maybe I can find a passage that says the opposite. And I would spend, I spent days, days trying to find verses that circumvented the sovereignty of God in salvation. Cause I didn't want to believe it. And by God's grace, I just kept finding verses that taught the same thing. <laughs> and I would get so frustrated. And I was like, there's got to be something in here. And eventually, what did God do? He took my stupid 10th grade self and said, Fuah! and I realized, oh, my goodness, what am I doing? I'm trying to make God's word say what I want it to say. And I am so thankful for that day. So thankful for the work of the spirit that God did not allow me to do what my heart was edging toward wanting to do, to make it say what I wanted it to say. Well, how do I know if I'm twisting the text? How do I know if what I'm saying is, is biblical? Well, the Bible tells us we can speak confidently about God's word if we're humbling ourselves when we read God's word. In other words, you don't have to worry about when you read a text. I can't say anything because it might be false teaching. That's not what God's teaching you here. God's not saying, well, hey, I've got a friend going through something and I could share a Bible passage with her, but I don't know if that passage is really saying what I think it's saying. And so I don't say anything. I'll just, let the, I'll just give them the pastor's number and they can handle it. Again, this is willful. No one stumbles into being a false teacher. No one accidentally becomes, you know, uh, what Peter's talking about here. In fact, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit teaches us and protects us. No, one, no one's going to accidentally wander into apostasy. And as Christians, we need to work on this because we're always afraid that we're going to accidentally fall into some grave sin. You know, like it's going to, and, and we, do, we, we do this. So like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do what the Bible says I'm supposed to do. And then we do it. But then what are we afraid of? But am I doing it for the right reason? You know? 
And then you struggle with, and this always happens as we grow as believers, right? Some of you have texted me about this recently. Uh, You see what the Bible says, and then you start to do it. And then the accuser comes and says, but yeah, but why are you doing it? And then we're like, should I even do it? Because I might not be doing it for the right reasons. I don't think I'm not doing it for the right reasons, but maybe I'm not doing it for the right reasons. And, uh, and you end up with this false sort of guilt where you end up doing nothing, which then actually does make you guilty. We're afraid that we're going to try and end up doing the right thing and, and, and actually end up sinning. That, that's not how God works in, in general. And that's not how he works when it comes to false teaching. God protects his people from this type of false teaching and from being a false teacher in first john john talks about he's talking about in first john how to protect yourselves from the antichrist right so we're not even talking about false teachers he's like this is how you protect yourselves from antichrists and remember that's always plural okay the anti antichrists and he talks to us about how to protect ourselves from antichrist and he says you know what this is what you do but also know that god protects you so that you'll know what is true and what is false so first john chapter 2 verse 20 and 21 he says, but you've been anointed. So he just told them how to protect themselves from antichrists. Then he says, but you've been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you, you know it and because no lie is of the truth. In other words, you're going to know when it's a lie and you're going to know when it's the truth. The Holy Spirit has given you what you need to know. So that when you see a lie, you can know when it's a lie and, and when it's the truth. God not only teaches us his word, he protects us from dangerous misreadings. And the false teachers know, they know that they're wrong. And the danger for you is if you get to God's word and you know that's not what God's word says and you say it anyway, it will always be willful, obviously willful. You get the descri- description of the false teachers here, bold and willful, not trembling, blaspheming. I mean, this is, this is pretty intense stuff. False teachers willfully deny their master in favor of their own rule over scripture. You know what to do? Your job when it comes to scripture is not to rule over scripture, not to be its master. Your job isn't even to speculate over scripture. Your job is to steward what God has given you. That's what, that's what Paul tells Timothy. And that's a good thing for us to remember. And that's where we'll, and look at first Timothy chapter one, verses three and four. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. I mean, they're going obviously going beyond God's word which promote what? Speculation. So don't speculate, right? Rather what? Rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Faith trusts God's word more than it trusts yourself. Faith knows that your job is not to speculate. Your job is not to change. Your job is not to go beyond. Your job is not to pull up short. Your job is to be a steward. What has God said? That is what I must believe. That is what I must teach. And Christian, that is what I must do. My master tells me so. Let's pray. As we bow our heads, take a time to pray to our master. Just right now. Uh, It would be silly to have this time talking about the Lord as our master, talking about submitting to him, being stewarded by him and not come to him and say, God, you're the one who teaches me. You're the one who protects me. So, Father, please do that. 
So let's take, we take a moment to begin our service in prayer. So let's take a moment to end it in prayer. Just go to our father and pray that, that he would protect us. That he would destroy, uh, as we're going to see, false teachers, even destroying the false teacher in our own hearts. That God would guard our hearts. And that he would be the master of our lives, the master of our Bible reading, the master of our obedience And we can pray this with certainty and with joy because as as John tells the people, it is his Holy Spirit that will teach us what we need to know, that will protect us. And so we go into the word not afraid, but we do go submitting, humbly submitting to whatever our master says. And calling on our teachers to do the same. Father, we do thank you for your word. I cannot imagine us as a people if our job was to speculate. To try and divine your mind. To try and figure out what we should go or what life is. I'm thankful that your word has given us everything that we need. To be complete, competent men and women of God. To be good husbands, good wives, good mothers, good fathers, good church members. Everything that we need is there. We do not need to go beyond it. And we do not need to pull up short of it. We need, as Paul told Timothy, we need to have the faith that stewards the word. A stewardship, Father, that is by faith if we trust your word if we have faith in you and the completeness of your word then father we will recognize our job is to but be stewards the church does not grow when we twist the word our lives do not grow when we twist the word it brings only destruction father may we trust you And trust your word, humbly submitting to you as our master and Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.